Revelation chapter 10 is where we are. Um, uh, the, the Bible passage that we uh, quoted together this morning, it ties in a little bit to what, uh, what I'm dealing with today, but I often think about it when I think of the task of preaching, and I keep in the front of my Bible uh, this part of the same verse uh, in the Amplified Version. Uh, if you're familiar with that, it basically puts every possible nuance of the various words in the sentence and just kind of lays it out. So it becomes extraordinarily long. But I, I refer to this often uh, as my task, but really our collective task as a church, and it says this, preach the word as an official messenger, be ready when the time is right and even when it's not. Keep your sense of urgency whether the opportunity seems favorable or unfavorable, whether convenient or inconvenient, whether welcome or unwelcome. Correct those who err in doctrine or behavior. Warn those who sin. Exhort and encourage those who are growing towards spiritual maturity with inexhaustible patience and faithful teaching. We proclaim the gospel. We preach the word. And I, I pray that our church is always faithful to that task. You too, I would encourage, pray that we're always faithful to that task, that I'm always faithful to that task. Well, as we take our Bibles together this morning, Revelation chapter 10, I invite you to follow along in your own. And there's Bibles in the rack in front of you if you do not own your own. Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring when he called out. The seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. An angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the word of God. Well, we're going to pray, and as we do that, we're asking for the Lord's help in this time. I encourage you to pray along with me. Father, your word lies open before us. We, we know it's living and active. We know we need it. It is life to us. 
you appoint that this word should be preached in season and out of season. And um, Father, uh, I pray that through this time of proclamation, the Lord Jesus himself would be exalted because your word says when he is lifted up, he draws people to himself, and we want that to happen. We want to be drawn to Jesus, to grow in maturity. Lord, for any here who is yet unbelieving, we want them to be drawn to Jesus in saving faith. All of this, we pray. In doing it, we pray that the Lord Jesus himself would be glorified, and we ask it all in his name. Amen. I'm sure you're quite familiar with the figure of speech that pairs two contradictory words together. It's called an oxymoron. Of course, we use them all the time without thinking. Uh, original copy, that's an oxymoron. You say same difference, virtual reality, freezer burn, you, you get what I'm saying. And you're probably familiar with a, a couple of caustic examples, which are not tex- technically oxymorons, but really they are offered up as such in the sense of maybe snobbery or, or disdain. And I'll give you first, if you're British, don't be offended. British cuisine, it's offered up as a... And, and here, I don't hold this to be true, but I've heard it, American intelligence. <laughs> I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true. Okay? I'm just saying it. You, you've heard it. Now, of course, you... I'm sure you've already figured out my my message title is a single word oxymoron combining two contradictory ideas. It makes sense to us, doesn't it? Bittersweet. For example, the death of an older Christian saint. We would say, well, that's, that's bittersweet. And of course, it's bitter because of our loss. Death is hard, separates, but it's sweet because our loved one is with the Lord. And we get that. Well, in our, in our Bible text, in John's vision here, John is given a responsibility that is at the same time bitter and sweet. There's delight combined with some angst. There's joy. There's potentially sadness. It's a message which is life to some, but death to others. I just by way of a brief review, won't go back very far, I take it that the seventh of the seals, now we're, we haven't got there yet, we dealt with the sixth seal last Sunday, the seventh of, oh, sorry, the sixth seal, sixth, sixth trumpet last Sunday, I take it that the seventh of the seals, the seventh of the trumpets, and, and later we'll see the seventh of the bowls, these represent the finality of the church age, so these are really unfolding, uh, seals, trumpets, bowls, they're unfolding as I see it over the entirety of the church age from, from the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus to the second coming. It's what, what we can expect. It's a lot of judgment language. Uh, but it all culminates in the return of Christ in power and glory. And with that, that final trumpet, final seal, final bowl, the seventh, there is the judgment that is unleashed on the unrepentant. Now, as I said, chapter 9, we dealt with this last week, it ended with that sixth trumpet. And you may be wondering, well, where's the seventh? Shouldn't that be next? Well, what's happening here in chapter 10 all the way through 1114, there's this kind of a parenthesis. There's a pause in the explanation of the trumpets. And it's really very similar to that parenthesis that we saw uh, in, in, in between the sixth and seventh seals. And then chapter seven showed up 
between the sixth and seventh seals, I, I take it, identifying the new Israel, the ones who are sealed, though therefore they are protected from God's judgment. I also take it that, that chapter seven here isn't to be understood as chronological. It's like the Lord is saying to John, okay, we're gonna pause here. I want you to understand some things. Here's what you should expect until Jesus returns. But, but I, wanna, I wanna remind you, again, I'm putting words around what I think is happening. As if the Lord is saying, I want to remind you in this vision what, why you're being shown these things. What's the purpose of all of this? So as we consider this text of Scripture this morning, uh, I want to look at unpacking this with just these two simple headings to, to get a sense of where this is going. And here are my headings, just to understand how I'm organizing things. First, we'll look at the authority, and then we'll look at the commission. Simple headings, nothing too overly creative. The authority first and then the commission. First, the authority as we look at this. Just by way of illustration, the question, who's asking? I think it's, it's a question that everyone who's worked in a hierarchical structure, they would ask that question, who's asking? So if somebody in a company received a memo indicating that there's a new strategic plan which impacts her or his job priorities, right, it would matter where the source of that memo was, right? If it came from an entry-level data entry person, I think it would be disregarded out of hand. Who are you to set company strategy? But if it came from the CEO, it would be immediately understood that there's some authority behind it, and whatever this is, means, that there's some good reason for it. This directive is part of a larger strategic plan, and it's probably been in the works for some time. Who's asking matters. Now, the importance of the message and the reason for it has everything to do with the one who's giving it, the one who has the authority. So what is also true is that what John hears now and sees now is not new per se. It's not new information, but it's really a reaffirmation of what God had planned before creation and has been communicating ever since he put his words into the mouths of prophets. So it's not particularly new, even though it's presented in a new way. And I'll remind you, in Revelation, there's so much here, so much here that alludes to prophetic passages that have already been written down, our Old Testament. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there is this striking parallel that shows up in, in this passage. A striking parallel with both the call of Daniel, if you look back in your Bibles, you can check it this afternoon, Dan, Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. There's a parallel with that, but also a parallel with Ezekiel, the call of Ezekiel in chapter 2 through 3.11. So those two, it, there's some great similarities here. Now, as we get to unpacking what he sees in this vision, so in his vision, John now sees another mighty angel. Now, there's a lot to consider here in, in what he sees. And as we read it together, I'm sure you're wondering, well, who, this is a strange picture. It is. It's, a, it's a, an apocalyptic vision, and, and it's loaded with symbolism. Now, he says another, another, because there was a prior mighty angel he encountered him back in chapter 5. And you can see chapter 5, verse 2. That mighty angel proclaimed, really asking the question, 
Who is worthy to open the scroll? All right? He asked that question. So this mighty angel is different than that one, but I would suggest to you, as we look at the description of this mighty angel, much more powerful, much greater. And if you followed it through, and if you, you noted it, uh, at least this is how it struck me, the language from chapter 10, verse 2 to verse 4, it seems exalted language. It seems more than an angel to me really the kind of language to describe Christ. And that's what I think he's seeing. Now, I realize the word angel is being used, but, but it's not, it's, it's not um, diminishing to the office of Christ to, to use the word angel, because angel simply in the generic means messenger. So in a sense, he's functioning as a messenger from the very throne of God. And in fact, Jesus' entire life in ministry, he said, often, I say what the Father tells me to say. So in, in a technical sense, he was, he's certainly God, the Son of God. But in a sense, he was a messenger of the word from the Father. So here I see it is the same. And so as we look at this, uh, how he's described, and even if, if this is not meant to be understood as Christ himself, at least the language suggests that this message that's going to follow has divine authority. So notice how he's described. Coming down from heaven, where God dwells. A foot on the land and a foot in the sea. That indicates this, this authority over the whole earth. He's wrapped in a cloud. We can look back to Revelation 1-7. That's language describing there specifically the Son of Man with a rainbow over his head. Again, this is, draws us back to the Old Testament. It's quite like the description of God himself in Ezekiel 128. His face, like the sun. Well, that's descriptive of the Son of Man back in Revelation 1.16. Now picture this. His legs like pillars of fire. A pillar of fire. And that, that should evoke an image of God's presence, his real presence with the Israelites, with the pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. His legs are pillars of fire. And he's calling out like a lion. And again, that lion language often used in regards to the lion of the tribe of Judah, that messianic title that he has. And from his voice, seven thunders sounded. Seven, really symbolic of divine perfection or completion. But that thunder, that should then, I think, in our minds, bring us back to, to the occasion of, of God speaking at Mount Sinai, right? It sounded like thunder. This is seven thunders. Now, John sees this, and I think it establishes that what follows has divine authority, now, of course, this is not distinguished from the rest. All that he has received in his vision to this point is divine authority. But John is not simply now observing. He is being prepared, I take it, for a specific task with authority from on high. That's why he's being shown this. Now, I want to remind you how Jesus commissioned his disciples and, by extension, how he commissioned the church. You're familiar with this. We talk about it all the time. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching, etc. It's a great commission. But you know, before Jesus said that, before he even said that, 
as if there was a question in the mind of the disciples, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, remember, Jesus had died, risen from the grave, showed himself to his disciples, and now he's telling them, just in case, I'm, I'm giving you marching orders here, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, you might be thinking he's stating merely obvious. No, I, I take it what Jesus did at the Great Commission. He's saying, look, the strength of what I'm telling you to do is based on my overarching authority in all things. And I, I take it that this is what's happening here in the way John is seeing this. Whatever's coming is coming with the backing of divine authority. Now, what John hears Jesus say, if this is the Christ, these seven thunders sounded. Now, I take it it's likely a message of judgment, but, but we don't know what's, what's in that message. John is told, seal that up. Don't, don't write this down. That's, that's not what you, you need to do here. And what happens next is, a, is a, an encouragement to consider God's larger plan. There's this declaration that the mighty angel, I'm going to say Christ, I just want to, I, I think that's who this is. There's this declaration that Christ makes about the end. And the certainty of that plan, he vows it by an oath, right? You see that in, um, um, in verse 6. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what in the earth, and what is in it in the sea, and what is in it. What does he make the declaration? He makes a declaration about the end. So here, another clear illusion, and we see this, we can look back to Daniel. The same thing happens where, where the man in that picture is clothed in linen. He makes an oath about the end when all things would be finished. Now here in our text, again, what John sees has happened before, right? He's seeing these repeated uh, pictures of the way in which God interacted and, and declared his plan for judgment and salvation. So here, he makes this, this oath by heaven. And the specifics of it are, we see in verse 7, but in the days of the trumpet, sorry, prior to that in verse 6, there would be no more delay, but, verse 7, in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophet. Again, not new information. The mystery of God would be fulfilled. Now, I've said previously, and I, I take it that the, the trumpets really represent God's declaration of victory, in a sense, in advance. And I'll remind you of the Joshua's conquest of Jericho. On the seventh trumpet blast, the victory was complete. They really didn't have to fight. The walls fell down and, and the victory was handed to them. So John is being told that this series of judgments, the seventh trumpet is coming, things will come to an end. That seventh trumpet reveals the fulfillment, as 
the mighty angel, as Christ is saying. That represents the fulfillment of the mystery of God. And I take it that that's the very reason for the Lord renewing this prophetic call to John. Now, if you imagine all that he has seen to this point, I, I can see that it would be very dizzying, like just so much. Why is he being shown all these things? What does it have to do with him? God's, God's judgment on rebellious and sinful people from the resurrection of Christ until his return implies something. It implies that there's this important task for John as he is a prophet. And this says something about how God communicates what he's going to do. I was reminded uh, what, what it says in Amos 3.7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. That's quite a statement. God does nothing. And so the point here is that, that John is being told these things. Because God's going to do some things, and he doesn't do those things unless he reveals it to a prophet who therefore is going to speak it. So God never acts capriciously. The judged will know the reason for God's wrath to be poured out on them. That will not be a mystery. So when that judgment does come, it will not have been without due warning. The judgment on the earth will have been warned. So, talks about the mystery of God to be, that that would be fulfilled. Well, we can take a peek. We'll get to this in next week, but we can peek ahead to 11, chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. We can see there how in the end, Christ is acknowledged to be king over all. And so the result of that, those who reject his kingship, they'll definitely have to face his wrath. So that implies a decision on all who are judged or all who see these judgments being poured out. It implies a decision on their part either to submit or rebel. They're not being invited to rebel. They're being invited to submit. But if they don't submit, it is a rebellion. So again, at the end of chapter 9, following the trumpet, those, I'll remind you what it said, those who remained alive, they did not repent of the works of their hands. So these judgments are coming. They did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not give up worshiping idols. They did not repent of murder, sorceries, sexual immorality. God's judgments would be unleashed in order to drive the rebellious to repentance and faith in Christ. But they don't see Christ as king then. But they will. They don't Surrender to his authority, but they will. They don't give glory to God, but they will, even as they are going to be condemned. They will give glory to God. Christ will use his authority to judge, and by that same authority, he reaffirms John's prophetic ministry. Listen, for all of us who have looked to Christ in faith, this mystery has been revealed. This is our glorious hope. Even as we see the judgment unfolding, the mystery has been revealed to us. In Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, 
Apostle Paul writes, I love this passage, in him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That will be glorious. For all who are in Christ, that will be glorious. And it's this very fact of what Jesus has announced. This is coming to pass. There's an implication. What's John to do? What are we to do? Well, that gives us to the commission, the second heading here. I think we get this, that a a commission is more than a mere task, right? So if someone in authority gives you a task, it could be as simple as taking out the trash. So parents, you tell your children, take out the trash, clean up your room. It's a task. It could be as complicated in a, in a large company. Uh, it could be as complicated as Im- implementing a new marketing strategy. There's a beginning to the task and a probable end. But that task really does not define the doer of the task. It's just a task. That task is not particularly concerned with your identity. The thing just needs to be done. That task doesn't necessarily even define your life. It need not. But a commission on the other hand, and a particularly a commission from the Lord, well, that's different. That has everything to do with your core identity as a disciple of Jesus. And this commission effectively defines every aspect of your life. Nothing is left out. Now this mighty angel, Christ, I'll say, he has in his hand this little scroll that is open. Now I I take it to be distinguished from the the scroll with the seven seals that only Christ, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb standing as though he had been slain, he was only worthy to open that scroll. In his hand, this little scroll, well, it's already open. It's open. So in his vision, John hears a voice from heaven from the throne of God, to take the scroll from the mighty angel, to receive the word from Christ. And in this, he hears two imperatives, two things that effectively will define his life. Now, referring to the scroll, verse 9, he's told, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Now, here's another Old Testament illusion. All you have to do is look back at Ezekiel. He was told. He was told to prophesy against the house of Israel. He's told to prophesy against the nations for their rebellion. And I want you to look at the similarity of the command. This is what it says in Ezekiel. Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Same. Now, as I thought about this, well, we don't eat our Bibles, right? So it's a vision. So what's the significance 
of eating the scroll. And, and I think we get this, that what you eat becomes part of you. What you eat gives you the nutrients that you need to sustain your life so that, so that you can fulfill the responsibilities that you have, right? If you don't eat, you die. I think the scroll being eaten here by John is meant to convey the same idea. And I take it that the scroll coming from the hand of Jesus, being told by the Father to take it from the hand of Jesus, the scroll is God's word. It's the, the scriptures, and they're ultimately about Christ and about his gospel. And we understand the life-giving nature of the word of God from the very word of God spoken by God, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that, that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So that little scroll, that little scroll is open before us from the hand of Christ to his apostles, to his church, to Christ's church. Now I want to remind you how people reacted to Jesus' words when Jesus was in the wilderness teaching, this is John chapter 6, he was saying some very difficult things. Those things repelled so many people and they just turned away. It says in John chapter 6, verse 66, many, it says many of his disciples turned away and no longer followed him. Sad. Well, Jesus asked his own disciples, the 12. He said, are you going to leave as well? And you know this, we even sing it in a song. They understood something that, that we likewise need to take to heart. They, they said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. These are words of life to us. And because of the nature of God's word, not just what Jesus spoke in the wilderness to his disciples, but the, the whole collection of these 66 books bound together for us, transmitted through the ages, and we have them so easily accessible because of the very nature of God's word, giving, given that they are living and active, Hebrews 4.12. They have been breathed, breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. God's word is the, the most effective, the most reliable way, the most obvious way to access the very presence of God and fellowship with him. And I hope you know this. It's not merely intellectual. It's experiential. It's not just something we do with our minds. It, it's, it's an experience that we have with the word of God because God's word accomplishes in us the very things that it commands. Truly believing the word of God over time transforms us into people who truly reflect the character of Jesus from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's why the psalmist said this, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So just as John was told, just as he was told, John found the little scroll sweet in his mouth, but in his stomach, it was bitter. It was bitter in his stomach. 
and I take it that that bitterness, the first imperative, eat, eat the scroll. And I take it that that bitterness has to do with the second imperative. Verse 11, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is what you've got to do. So this isn't just for you to enjoy, but this word is going to go out to many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This is everyone on the earth. They need to hear this too. So I take it that, that the implication for John is that in the same way that the house of Israel would not listen to Ezekiel, John's prophecy would be largely ignored. And true, that, that prophecy would, would certainly include the gospel announcement of the kingship of Jesus, that that truth will be acknowledged by everyone in the world, every cultural group, every power center, every nation, right down to every single individual, to the kings who are entrusted, kings, presidents, leaders who are entrusted with the stewardship of leading, they would acknowledge that someday, whether in joy or their own horror. But that reality, uh, that the prophecy, the reality of this prophecy also includes the, the truth that there is judgment for the unrepentant on kings, peoples, nations, and individuals. And I think you'd agree, it's an unpleasant thing to see people revile God's word it's an unpleasant thing to see people ignore his warnings about judgment. Some of these people are people we love. That's unpleasant. That's hard. It's the bitterness of God's word because it divides those who believe and those who don't believe. I know the temptation for us, brothers and sisters, is to, to hear the word of God and take it to heart, but just let sleeping dogs lie, let, let, let things be. And I'm not arguing that we get out there in a street corner and pronounce judgment on people. But there's so many lies, so many things that the world throws at us every single day that sometimes I wonder, and I'm including preaching myself here, if I'm just going, it's too bad for you. And, and maybe I'm not bold enough to say, look, you need to repent of that. You don't acknowledge Christ. It won't go well for you. It's a euphemism. That's condemnation. And I know it's hard. Some of the people, like I said, are people that we love. And that is very bitter. Christ shows himself to rule over the land and the sea and everywhere, in and above and in between. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. That belongs to him. And he did say as well that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and the end will come. The gospel will be proclaimed by who? The gospel is that mystery revealed under the authority of Jesus. 
has been revealed through the witness of the apostle, the apostles, and that's our New Testament. And it comes to the church. We have the responsibility to make this mystery known. Ephesians 3. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are here this morning as a witness to the gospel of Christ, not only to the world around us, but authorities in heavenly places. Now in the end, when that seventh seal is opened, when that seventh trumpet sounds, that mystery will be fulfilled and the time for repentance will be complete and the final wrath for the un unrepentant will be meted out. But until then, until then, those belonging to Christ, for us, we must feed on the gospel. The gospel of Christ is indeed bittersweet. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have trusted that he is the son of God, if you know that he died for your sins, if you believe that he rose again, then the gospel should define our lives. It should define our lives. It is the source of our joy, but it will, when we truly believe it and embrace it, bring us some pain. It is bittersweet. And, and we can... We can enjoy those times when it's sweet because there is a sweetness to us when we ruminate on it together, right? When we gather together in this place and we remind each other of Christ, what he does, what he has done for us. There's sweetness in that. We grow spiritually because it is life to us, right? And it strengthens us. We know this until, so that we can endure until Christ appears. And in the church, it's, it's sweet to us when we sing about it, when we meditate on it, when we fellowship with the church around the gospel. And it's so, so very clarifying because it informs everything that we do together. But don't forget that the bitterness that John experienced in his stomach, that's what we feel and we should expect to feel when we stand for truth in a culture that is hostile to Christ. And brothers and sisters, I think it's here just to remind us. Expect it. I think we've had it easy. We've had it really easy. But I think it's going to get harder. Now, people in other parts of the world, they haven't had it easy. But we've had it easy. But let's prepare for it to get worse. And the culture is hostile to Christ because the word, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's folly. It's, it's like idiotic. It's like, what, what is that garbage? I don't want to hear that. It's folly. But to us, us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We know that. Paul continues, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. The self-proclaimed wise and discerning of this world do not want to humble themselves, so they rail against the truth. They are spiritually blind, 
They say, clearly, God says certain things are evil. They call it good. What God says is good. They say it's evil. And so we've got to be prepared for the bitterness of soul that the gospel will bring. When we say, not all religions teach the same thing, but Jesus is the only way to God. So I take it that John's prophetic commission is being given to us. In the next section of this, of this, we'll see how the church functions as a witness. We won't get there just yet, but next week. So that prophetic commission has been given to us. It's, it's been put down, the book of Revelation, and we have it. It isn't just looking at a fantastic story. There's an implication for us. And so here, this morning, and across the world, where people gather in the name of Jesus, we remind ourselves of the vision that Jesus gave his apostle. The only place in the world, the only witness for truth, the only ones who are proclaiming the kingship, the only ones who understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one is the household of God, which is the church of the living God. We, brothers and sisters, are called to be a pillar and buttress of this truth. 1 Timothy 3.15. So, what do we do? We hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. We must continue to stir up one another to love and good works by, by not neglecting to meet together, and I would say in person. Some are in the habit of doing that. We must remind ourselves of Jesus' warning. In this world, you will have tribulation. The sweetness of our fellowship around God's word prepares us for, for the bitter opposition for the world. And when that trumpet sounds, that last trumpet, when the dead in Christ are raised imperishable, death will be swallowed up in victory of Christ. And every knee will bow. We look forward to that day. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the church in Philadelphia, and this is for us too, Jesus said, I am coming soon. So, may God grant us the grace to hold fast to what we have so that no one may seize our crown. Let's pray. Father, we love the sweetness of the gospel. We thank you for the immeasurable grace that has been poured out on us. But Lord, this gospel of our salvation is also the, the bad news of judgment for all who have rejected that. And Lord, we want to be a steadfast, immovable pillar and buttress of this truth in this community. So God, we pray, strengthen us to hold on and keep us faithful to the day, that glorious day when Jesus returns. In all we do, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, empower us to be faithful witnesses in this generation. We pray in Christ's name, amen.